we have limited time here. We don't know what it's going to be. And I think we all have gifts and skills to make the world a better place, whether that's being a really giving person or maybe where we have unique intelligence or availability to help people with our intellectual property, whatever it might be, we should be generous with what we have to help others because we don't know how much longer we need. Hey there, my name is Kim, and this is my podcast, Power Up Your Performance. I believe that we have the power to rewrite our stories, change the trajectory of our lives, pour love into the world, conquer monumental challenges, and that movement can be a catalyst for change. Let's grow together. Welcome to Power Up Your Performance. Hey, hey, welcome to the show. My name is Kim Peek, and I am so excited that you're here with me today. I have spring fever. We've had some great weather in Kansas City, especially for February, which is when I'm recording this. I typically try to pack my January, February, and March full of things to look forward to because I really, really don't enjoy cold weather or cloudy skies or the darkness that comes from shorter daylight hours. So I'm so excited that we are to that point of the year now where we have more sunshine every day going forward. And so when I think of spring, it makes me think about possibility and looking forward to all the warm weather adventures that I have planned with my bike, my stand-up paddleboard, my dogs, and a kayak. As the days become longer and the temperatures rise, we often feel inspired to take on new projects and reinvigorate our lives. Do you feel that? I mean, does spring do that to anybody but me? The same energy can be used to think about how you can give more to those around you through either physical acts or emotional support. So follow this cheesy analogy here for a minute. Like a flower that begins to blossom in the springtime, generosity allows us to open up, get creative, and show appreciation for those around us. It doesn't have to be a grand gesture or come with a hefty price tag. Even small tasks, such as lending an ear or offering help with daily chores, can make a huge difference in someone's life. In this episode of the podcast, I talked with Bob DePasquale. Bob has made it his life's mission to be the generosity guy. As a purpose-driven impact maker, he believes that everyone can make a positive impact on the world, and he has certainly done so following two life-changing events that took place during his freshman year of college. Bob encourages people to look for the blessings amidst tragedy and use their own gifts to help those in need. His story is one of inspiration, showing us how we too can enact great change in our lives and beyond. Being generous is one of the many ways we can create change, large or small, and make this world a better place for all of us. So I hope that you enjoy this conversation with Bob DePasquale, and I hope it helps you embrace generosity. Here's Bob. Welcome to the show, Bob. I'm so excited to have you here today. Thanks, Kim. I'm excited to be here. All right. You're known as the generosity guy, so tell us why. Because generosity saved my life. That's the short version. It brings back some crazy memories, but you know what? Uh, I think sometimes the most indelible lessons we learn are from the toughest times. So I was 18 and I was on my way to college. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was 18, I thought I was invincible. I thought I, you couldn't take me down. I, nothing pos possibly can go wrong in life. 
And I was headed up to New York. I, I live in South Florida. I was actually born in New York, but I moved there when I was three. So I'm pretty much a Floridian. And I was going up to college and I had three important goals. Or I had two important goals and one not so important goal. Number one, I was going to get to spend some time with my family that is all from New York that I didn't really know that well because I lived in Florida. Number two, I had a chance to play football in college. And then number three, I was going to get an education. Now, I'm not going to say that that was the order, but that was the order. <laughs> my parents probably thought or hoped that education was higher on the list. But anyway, I went up there. And when you're when you go to training camp for football, you're there like a month before the school year even starts. And so I'm up there, you know, by myself in New York and 18, first time ever going to be away from home that long. And or pretty early on in training camp, I was playing pretty well. I was getting some compliments. Things were going well, but I, I pulled a muscle. And, or at least I thought I had pulled a groin muscle. And I don't know about you, but if you've ever, if anyone out there listening has ever pulled a groin muscle, or if you haven't, it is, it's probably the most debilitating thing that you would ever expect. You can't twist your body. You can't stand up, sit down. You know, definitely can't run and play sports. And so it's a pretty painful injury I thought I had there. And so I was rehabbing it. And the funny thing is, is I would do this rehab exercise where I was sitting on a three-wheeled stool. So imagine a, a stool and then a really busy training room. And a, you know, a college training room is much more complicated and busy than a high school training room. So there's, a, there's almost 100 people in there on a given morning running around trying to get stuff done before practice at like 6 in the morning. So my, part of the exercise is basically to dodge people to get from one end of the training room to the other on this stool. And I looked so ridiculous, to be honest with you. I mean, I can't tell you how many people were saying, what are you doing? Like, they, Most of them probably thought I was just messing around. Like, get out of here. So quit messing around with the stool. Okay. So at one point, uh, it's a couple, you know, almost a week maybe into me doing this every morning and afternoon. Like whenever the, we were, the training room was open, I was in there doing rehab. And the, our head trainer was not a big guy. He was all of maybe five, 840 pounds. Uh, and in order to get people, people's attention, he used to have to stand on this box in the middle of the training room. And the one day I, I swear it was all of a sudden it got dead silent. I mean, typically there's all this commotion going on. And the only thing that I'm going to exaggerate in this story that I'm telling you is that it got dead silent. It seemed like it got dead silent in my, in, you know, my eyes or ears at that point. And he cups his Rick, his name is Ricky cups his hands and says, Bobby, you need to get back on the field, quit being a weakling. And I'm like, my 18-year-old ego just like, it took a shot. I, he called me out in front of coaches and trainers and teammates all in this training room. Here I am already getting made fun of for this ridiculous exercise I'm doing. <laughs> and now he's calling me a weakling. So I had this more private moment with him. And I said, Rick, listen, uh, I, I want to be out there on the field. I mean, I'm not milking this injury. I know I got to prove myself, but something's wrong. And he said, all right, well, I'm going let, to, let's have a more private meeting. And I told some of my teammates that we're going to have this meeting. And they're like, what? You're meeting with Rick privately? Like, no one talks to this guy. Something's wrong. Like, they knew something was wrong. So I had the meeting with him and we talked. He goes, all right, I'm going to send you to a doctor and figure out what's going on. So over a series, uh, period of the next week or so, I was driving all around New York City and Long Island as an 18 year old, technically an adult now. So I'm going by myself to all these different doctor's appointments. And Kim, I had every test in the book, CAT scan, ultrasound, sonogram, MRI, everything. I mean, I felt like I was, uh, you know, a, a testing dummy for the, the, you know, the radiology department 
in New York. And these appointments would take forever because I would go in there and, you know, when you're 18, you don't know about health insurance and answering questions. I mean, I'm answering medical questions. They're all going way over my head. I'm filling out paperwork. Then I go in there and I got to get prepped for all these different tests. So these things would take hours. And then finally, I had this appointment on a Thursday. And this was the Thursday before my first ever game, college football game, which we knew I wasn't playing in at this point. But my parents had already been scheduled to come up there, so they weren't going to cancel the trip by any means. So they they come up there, and uh, they're on their way up, and I had this appointment. So I go to this appointment expecting to be there for another few hours, like typical. Like it had become routine almost. And I went in there, and no, I mean, I got in there, and less than five minutes later, they call me back into the office immediately. No paperwork to fill out. I sit down. Less than a minute after that, the doctor comes in and he sits down. And he says, Bobby, I got to tell you something. You have cancer. And I mean, my draw, my jaw hit the desk. Like I didn't even know what that was. So I mean, taken aback. I, I couldn't even fathom the shock. And he could tell I was shocked. And he said, I know you're in shock. And the only thing I can tell you is that we're going to find an oncologist for you. And then we'll, we'll call you tomorrow. And. I don't even know what to say. I don't even know what an oncologist was. I was just going to ask. No less could I even, I, I, I probably still can't even spell that. So I leave this building and I'm there. I mean, I was, I was there for less than a half hour. I mean, it was so quick. And my mom calls me. So my, as soon as I walked out of the building, my phone rang. And it was the, the timing was impeccable. And she, she goes, Hey, I didn't expect you to answer. I figured you'd be in your appointment, but I just want to let you know we landed and we'll meet you back at your uncle's house, which is where we were going to meet because my uncle lives up there still. And she goes, but now that I have you on the phone, how'd the appointment go? And I was like, uh, well, ma, about the appointment. And so I had to tell her what, what I said. I said, you know, the doctor, the doctor said I have cancer, mom. And Kim, I can't tell you that moment was, it, it felt like my mom was screaming through the phone. It's the loudest blur, but yet it was dead silent all at the same time. And the only thing I remember hearing is my dad on the other end saying, Susan, Susan, that's my mom's name. What, what's wrong? What's the problem? And even he could tell something was wrong. And so we met back at my uncle's house. We shed a bunch of tears. We said some prayers and I hugged my parents for the first time in a month. I mean, I had, like I said, I hadn't been away from home that long. And I remember sitting at the the kitchen table there and I was thinking like, well, what's, you know, what's really going on? Like all of a sudden my my life could be over. It's, It's coming to an end. And we ended up speaking with an oncologist the next day. And he told me not to drop out of my college classes, which started the next week. And. Uh, that was Friday. Then Saturday we got up and we're still kind of mentally working through all of this. And my uncle's best friend came over the house and his name is Tim. And he comes in, says hi to my aunt and uncle, introduces himself to, to me and my parents. And he looks my parents dead in the eye and hands him his key, pulls his keys out of his pocket and hands my parents his keys. And my parents were like, well, what are you doing? He's like, well, Bob, Susan, uh, I can't imagine what you're going through with your son right now, but take my keys and my car for as long as you could possibly need it. And you can go to all your doctor's appointments, whatever you need it for, but you can have my car. And my parents were like blown away. They're like, what? 
And I was thinking to myself, wow, that's the most generous thing someone's ever done for my family. I, I couldn't even believe it. He said, he said goodbye to my aunt and uncle and he left. I mean, he was at the house for maybe 15 minutes. Wow. He came over to give away his car. That's it. And so a couple of days go by. It's now, uh, it's now Tuesday. So Tuesday morning, my second ever college class that I'd driven Tim's car to get to. <laughs> and I come out of the class and I'm sitting in the cafeteria getting something to eat. I was eating a breakfast burrito, pretty sure. And you remember like the televisions before they were flat screens, they were a tube, like mm -hmm. a, a square box. Yeah. So there's one of these small, maybe eight inch tube televisions hanging from the, a bracket in the corner of the ceiling and the wall. And so I'm watching the news. Now, I don't know the news station in New York. I'm whatever. I'm just with whatever's on TV eating my burrito there. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I'm watching it and a plane hits one of the twin towers. And I was like, wow, that's what a horrible accident. So I called my dad. I said, hey, Dan, you see what's happening? You watching the news? He goes, yeah, that's, that's crazy. And we're talking for, I mean, less than a minute. And all of a sudden, bam, other, other plane hits the other twin tower. And my dad was like, whoa, that's not an accident. You better come back to your uncle's house immediately. So I left there. Um, definitely didn't finish the burrito. It's probably still sitting there 20 something years later. And I hopped in the car and, uh, it was typically a 15 minute drive from my school to my uncle's house, but it took me nine hours to drive a normally a 15 minute drive. And later in life, I ended up getting a master's degree in broadcast journalism. I work in radio, love podcasting, love this medium. But I will never, ever in my life listen to nine straight hours of AM radio again. <laughs> but I listened to that news station all the way, listened to all the coverage of 9 11. I, I'm looking at, you know, burning towers in the background. And it was the most vivid thoughts and memories of that day in my life. And I pulled into my uncle's neighborhood and I ran out of gas. And I'm spanked. Thank God I made it in the neighborhood and I wasn't still on the highway or something. Right. And we pushed my car into my uncle's driveway. I never forget this. We pushed the car in uncle's driveway and we're looking at each other and we're my parents and, and my aunt. And I'm thinking, man, just a few days ago, I got this threat to my life and I don't know what the answer is, but now I think maybe the world's coming to bed. And we were, we just, we were just staring at each other. So we went inside and my aunt was besides herself because my uncle was on business the night before, supposed to fly home to New York. And she didn't know what to do. She's calling and phones her out. Finally, at like 8 p.m., he calls. And you could just see the relief on my aunt's face. And they're talking. And he was like, you know, goodbye. You know, I'm really sorry, but I got to run. I, it's crazy here. The phone's around. I, I was trying to call you, but, you know, I'm alive. Don't worry about me. We were gonna get we were getting ready to say goodbye, and he was like, "But wait, give me give me just a moment." Um, unfortunately, my friend Tim, who you all met on Saturday, he was in the towers this morning. He died, and it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Uh, Tim Tim was known for being a really generous person, and he worked for Kenner Fitzgerald, which was an investment bank that their offices were in there. And if you ever want to. YouTube or look at or listen to the interview with their president at the time. I'm paraphrasing, but essentially the key 
phrase to his speech was, we lost everyone. And so hundreds of people, I mean, we know thousands died, but hundreds from Canada Fitzgerald that morning perished. And they were such a generous organization. Tim was one of the leaders and they, they were so giving. They would give free office space to my uncle's foundation for cystic fibrosis, which is a disease that my cousin has. And so they were just known for being really, really generous people. And Tim was the type of guy who thought, you know, I don't know how much longer I have on this earth, so I'm just going to be a really giving person. And uh, the the only person that would typically be in the office that morning at the foundation, everyone from Canada Rochelle would be there early getting to work. But Timmy's her name, and for an uncharacteristically silly reason, she was late to work that morning, was caught in the subway underneath the tower. Now, the, the good news is she survived, but the stories, Kim, that she tells of her, you know, heroics and everything that happened are just amazing. And so you look at Tammy's experience and then you look at Tim's experience that morning. Um, they probably both experienced a similar form of fear, uh, but, but they both had completely different results of that day. And so generosity is extremely important in my life. Because not only because of what Tim did, but a bunch of other things that happened that are other stories I can tell, but ultimately a series of generous acts by people who were acting as if they didn't know how much time they had really ended up saving my life. And Tim just modeled himself after that. So it's a little bit of an honor to Tim and a lot of bit of, I feel like I have a responsibility to care for other people. Are you looking to build a business and live life on your own terms? Look no further than the Digital Dreamer podcast. Join my daughter, Abby, and I as we discuss side hustles, building your brand, digital strategies for connecting with your audience, and selling digital products, and so much more. Get the link in the show notes or search the Digital Dreamer podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts. Don't miss out on this incredible opportunity to take control of your future. Wow, you are the second person I've interviewed in the last week or so that has used that theme of we're not given tomorrow. We're not promised tomorrow. Nobody knows how much time you have. So you need to make the most of it. Yeah, I think it's so important. Um, I yeah, I was 18 years old at the time and thank God I'm alive now and I was healed physically. And so it took me almost a year mentally to kind of work through it. And then emotionally, it took me probably two years. And in that period of time, is when I realized, when I really picked up on that concept that we have limited time here. We don't know what it's going to be. And I think we all have gifts and skills to make the world a better place, whether that's being a really giving person or maybe where we have unique intelligence or availability to help people with our intellectual property, whatever it might be. Um, we should be generous with what we have to help others because we don't know how much longer we have. So do you believe that we all have a responsibility to make the world a better place? Yes. I, there's two things that I believe strongly since that experience. And it's been, and, and that's the primary one. That's the kind of the kicker in my life. But I have seen this in other occasions and other stories and other people's lives. But yes. So the, the two things I believe, I said, I believe we all have an ability to, and I heard this quote once, we may not change the world, but we may change the world for one. Mm-hmm. And so I think we all have ability to change the world, whether it's the entire world and solve world hunger someday. Might maybe someone, or maybe someone has a, an ability to build a large organization or corporation that does really well, or could be for profit or nonprofit. 
Or there's some people who their gift and skills are just working directly while with people and being super kind and helping them uh, with even the what you might think is the most simple of tasks. So yes, I believe, um, well, first of all, I believe that we all can, we all, we're all capable of really doing well for others. And then yes, I also believe there's a responsibility. Uh, now that doesn't mean that I think everyone has a responsibility to become famous for inventing something world-changing. That's not what I mean by that. I think the the belief is more rooted in the fact that even the smallest things can make a big difference for people. And so, yes, we can all do, we can all be kind on a daily basis. We can all lend a helping hand. We can all volunteer our time on occasion. Uh, if you're a business person, you can do some pro bono work. Um, if you are a stay-at-home type of homemaker type of person, then you can volunteer and help people around the neighborhood. Uh, in fact, I had someone ask me about this earlier today. You know, what if I don't have a huge platform or I don't work or I take care of the kids or uh, I'm unemployed right now? I, I, I had a very, very ill friend recently, and thank God she's recovering and she's, um, she's doing much better, a, big, a very good family friend of ours. And I realized how important uh, how they, her family, because of taking care of her back and forth to the hospital and surgeries, they were barely eating. So we set up, not us personally, but other friends of ours set up a meal train, essentially, okay. where all people would sign up. And I mean, how easy was that? All I had to do was make twice as much as my dinner that night and deliver it to them. And it took half okay. hour. So yes, we can all, we can all help. And I think we all should in some way or another. Yeah. And I think that it doesn't necessarily, like you said, it doesn't have to be that you spend money. I had a friend where um, I have three daughters. With my last daughter, I was on bed rest. They called it modified bed rest because I had two younger kids. And they're like, okay, there's no way a mom can actually be on full bed rest. But I had a neighbor who came over. She was a babysitter. She had a little girl she babysat. Every single day she came over and did her babysitting at my house and hung out mm. with us. And I still think, talk about generosity. That was like one of the most amazing things that I think anybody's ever done for me because of how it affected my children. I mean, it was a big deal to give up that much time, six months. Yeah, wow. And she came over and, and, and did what she had to do while making sure that she could also support your kids. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, that was huge because I don't know what, I don't know what we would have done without, without that generosity. Mm-hmm. So what is radical generosity? Ooh, okay. Love it. Love this question. Um, so I think we first should break down what radical is. I think sometimes radical can be considered off the wall, crazy, you know, uh, maybe has some negative connotations. But if you look at the definition of radical, it, it, what it simply means is it's something that other people may not consider normal or something that other people may not choose to do. Um, so I think there's a lot of things that we can do in life that others might not choose to do that are still really, really good. It's not all, you know, being risky and, you know, jumping off buildings and stuff. Uh, I, so radical generosity is doing something for someone when other people probably wouldn't. And so that might be giving them a car like Tim did. Um, or that might be going over someone's house and doing their babysitting for six months in their house instead of the comfort of your own home or wherever else they had to. And so radical generosity, it's about thinking beyond just the obvious. And I will challenge people. I'm learning to become a little bit more bold in my promotion of generosity. I, I don't want to be, uh, 
confront confrontational with people, but I think a lot of people give when they're expected to or when they're supposed to, when everyone else is. And I think those forms of giving are fine. Those are more uh, planned. But there are certain times where things come up, or even if it's not come up, maybe it's something that you've thought about for a while, but there are things that opportunities that I think we have to really change someone's world that other people might say, well, you're silly for even doing that. And so there's some risk in generosity for, for sure. I think radical generosity is going above and beyond what the average person would consider a reasonable expectation. Can you give me an example of one of those types of situations? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, I think Tim giving us his car is a perfect mm-hmm. example. In fact, his wife, God bless her, she's alive and their kids and I've had a chance to talk to her since then. She, she came home and she's like, you gave him your car? Oh, no. It didn't like, even occur to me that he had a family at home. What are you, nuts? I mean, why would you do that? So that's a, that's a great example. Uh, I've also seen other people, uh, let's see, not too long ago, I saw someone get out of their car in the middle of the road to help someone um, who was like, their car was pulled over in the middle in the middle of the lane. And so that was probably a little bit risky, but they, they positioned their car in the right spot. To, and I was thinking to myself, man, I wouldn't have done that. But they did it for whatever reason. Um, there's also, there's a, there's a couple of organizations um, that, that you can go to and do volunteer work that you never thought possible that you would be able to do. Um, and you just put yourself out of your comfort zone a little bit and you'd be surprised. Um, and sometimes some of the, some of the most challenging things you do in life are the most fulfilling, uh, and the most beneficial to you as well. And that's another thing I like to talk about too, but you know, you do it not to receive, but I mean, let's be honest. If you've given something before, you always get something back, you know, and I don't mean tangible. It's usually in, uh, it's, it's usually in emotional benefits and hormones and those type of things. And there's scientific evidence of this too, that I'd be glad to talk about. But yeah, I think when you do something, when you challenge it, just like if you started a business, let's say you're a business person and it's not a charitable effort, but you're trying to, to do something hard when you when you choose, specifically you, not when you're told by someone else to the world or a message out there, when you choose something really, really hard to do and then you accomplish it, accomplish it I mean, the feelings of, of accomplishment are so much better than when it's something else that you really didn't want to do, but you had to. So okay. the same thing goes for generosity. If you find, if you do something like what Tim did or what I just talked about, the person in the, in the street, and then you help that person out and you, and you figure that out, the feeling that you get, the benefit that you get from that is, is really exponential too. So it's, it's not just, uh, cause I've heard a lot of people out there talk about, well, if you're constantly putting yourself second, then how are you ever going to get ahead in life? Or how are you going to survive? Oh. Or isn't that good for your self care? And I, I said, the, the moment you start talking about an order of worth, then you're immediately taking it in the wrong direction. And I don't think radical generosity or any of those examples are about putting yourself behind anyone. I think it's about coming alongside people. And the, and so it's, we're together in this, like, you know, we're humans and we're trying to help each other. That's what it, it's not either I drive off and I don't help this person because I'm putting myself ahead of them or I come help them because I'm putting them ahead of me. I don't see it that way. I see it. Let's, let's be on the same level, but that's still just thoughts. So how do people find that area where they feel like they can make a difference? I mean, there's random things where, you know, the guy on the side of the road or the person mm-hmm. that needs help carrying their groceries out of, to their car. 
But how do we find that place that is really meaningful and that can help us make a difference? Yeah, I've been getting this question uh, a lot in the past couple of weeks, actually. And I'm, I'm, I don't want to say changing my answer, but I'm, I'm evolving my answer. I think my, my answer used to be a couple of years ago, it just, it would simply be, you know, internet search and just look for stuff, like just figure it out, right? If you get out, you got to have the intention. Um, and I believe that's, in, I believe that's important. But what I found is a lot of people would do that and either the best organization with the best SEO on their website or the most pressing thing or the thing that they heard about from their friends uh, was what they ended up supporting. And don't get me wrong, it's good that they supported something, but there wasn't a connection per se. <laughs> and I think your question really, uh, you know, leads to this. I think it actually makes sense to spend some time thinking about the things that are most meaningful to you. Uh, and that could be like for our, for example, for our family, uh, it's kind of been a slam dunk since my cousin was diagnosed, but cystic fibrosis is a terrible disease. And the, the amount, and we're, we're very fulfilled right now because we've been so invested in it for so long, and now we're starting to see the benefits. Um, so think about either things that have affected your family or things that you know that you enjoy. This is, a, this is one that it's been helpful for a lot of people. They told me, if there's something in your life that you really enjoy, but you maybe take for granted, that could be an area. There's probably someone in your life that, or in the world somewhere, maybe that doesn't have uh, have opportunity for that. And there may be opportunities for you to um, work around that. So now in my professional life, I'm pretty involved in, in helping people manage their finances for philanthropic impact. And in some cases, we will help people start foundations and start not five hundred one c threes and nonprofit organizations. And that may be an option for you. Um, if you want to go down that road, but a lot of people maybe don't have the time or the wherewithal and desire to create a whole organization. But I'm telling you, Kim, there's an organization with just about everything out there that already exists that you can just piggyback on. So what I'm getting as it's just, I'm reinforcing the point that it's most important that you figure out what's most meaningful to you and then look for the opportunities instead of, you know, vice versa. Think about what you can bring the most to. If you're a business owner, another suggestion is, Think about what your skill set in your business could be most beneficial to. So, for example, if you're an attorney, right, and how can your skills and understanding law maybe help other organ, maybe help a nonprofit organization? Maybe you can do some pro bono work, or maybe there's some underrepresented people in the community in our world that you could that you could help out. Um, if you're, I mean, the medical field is a perfect example of this. How many nurses and doctors do I know that do overseas missions and do medical missions? So it's really what's most important to you. And I find that a lot of people these days, more than ever before, are starting to work more in fields that that use the skills that they that they do really care about. So that's a good place to start. What are your what are your skills and what what's most meaningful to you? Speaking of things that are coming up, themes that are coming up a lot more in interviews or just as you're talking to people, I've noticed two other ones. And one is it seems like more people are searching for what their purpose in life is. Mm -hmm. And then the other one is almost feels like it could be an opposite, but I don't think it is. And that's the sense of the importance of play. And I think that's just because we're all so stressed out that we're looking that play and having fun has become more important. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I have some commentary on that one for sure. Uh, I'm I'm a big believer in work hard, play hard. Uh, I think that, and I'm not 
a believer, at least I haven't found anyone who has so-called work-life balance. Um, I've heard a couple people talk about specifically a guy by the name of Andrew Tarvin, who was a guest on, on my podcast not too long ago. Well, no, actually probably almost two years ago now. Um, but he talks about work-life harmony. And so you're right. We are stressed. I mean, the, the world is very, very stressed right now. Obviously the, the pandemic has, has had a lot of effect on that, but even still, I think remote work in some ways is a good thing, but I think it also keeps us at work a lot. Mm-hmm. So people are definitely thinking about work too much. So the closer you can get to doing something that is more meaningful than just a paycheck to you, I would encourage you. Now I understand we're all not in the situation to be able to do that, but work-life harmony to me is very, very important. And what that means is if you're a highly, highly driven person and you want to accomplish and achieve, and there's psychological research behind this, there's really no stopping you from putting the time into what you have to be extremely intentional intentional about, though, is you really have to identify the other things that bring you joy in life. Because if you don't, you might end up overstressed and working all day and not playing, if you will, to use your terminology at all. And I generally fall into that category. So what I've done is I'm laser focused on the calendar. I'm laser focused on, on the daily calendar, but also the yearly calendar. And there's certain things that I do that I know that I'm 100% all in. And it's when I, when I say play hard. When I say play hard, I don't mean um, going back. I, why does this keep coming up, jumping off of buildings and out of planes? Like I, when I say play hard, I don't mean uh, hazardous play. Mm-hmm. I mean like being all in. And that could be yeah. board games or playing with your kids, whatever it is. But mm-hmm. be super intentional about that time. And there's two benefits to this. One is the obvious, right? You understand, like, it's good. It's playtime. It's relaxing. It, it, it builds relationships with the family. Like, we all need that. We can all agree on that. But the people I know that play hard or do that are super intentional about that. All of the other stuff in their life benefits from it. So, like, they're more efficient at work because the brain is recharged. If they try to be more intentional, they're way more joyful. When they go out to do some kind of volunteer work or they do some kind of what I call impact work. And so uh, taking that time, being super intentional about the amount of time you spend doing it and then doing it well, too. Like some people, won't, some people will tell me this. Well, you know, all I want to do is sit around, lay on the couch. Like that's what I do for relaxation. And that's physically relaxing. But that and maybe mentally relaxing. Sure, because you're not crunching numbers and doing emails at work or whatever. But it's not really emotionally relaxing. Believe it or not, I think then you have to be more intentional. You have to plan specific time. You have to tell your family, hey, we're going to go to the movies or we're going to go out to dinner or we're going to take a walk. And, we'll, and I want to talk about the meaning of life with you, son. I don't know, but like think like spend the time thinking about this stuff. And I think that's really, really important. So to answer your question, I think we do need to play more. We need to work. It's okay to work hard and you should, but you got to know your limits. And then when you're not, when you, when your time is off, make sure that su- make sure not all of it, right? I'm not asking you to have your day scheduled out 24 hours every, you know, have a activity. There should be time where you just do nothing, but there should also be time where you're extremely intentional about your, about your recreational time. What could families do to make sure that their children or grandchildren are getting those lessons about generosity? You could volunteer together and they could see their parents do things. But beyond that, like, how do you teach generosity to younger generations? So that's a question for my wife. I, I think she's, she's a kindergarten teacher. Oh, um, awesome. 
Yeah, she and she does this. And I think a little bit of my experiences plus things that she's done in the classroom over the years, and I don't know all the finer details, but um she's taught me a little bit about this because she understands the young mind. And so there's two things that come to mind. Um one is they they should understand what they have and what they don't have. Um they pe- people in the world, um they're there's a lot of different understanding of what wealth is, right? Some people think wealth is all financial. Some people think it's all happiness. Some people think it's about possessions or status. And so I think young people from an earlier age than you might think, and this is what my wife would say, like you'd be surprised at how intelligent a five or six-year-old is. And that doesn't, and I don't mean uh, intelligent as like book smart or reading, but intelligent is like understanding uh, status. And so people should understand, young people should understand what they have. And that simple understanding of what they have enables them to understand what other people also have or don't have. And so they are so giving, like it's, it's inerrant. So it's actually not, let's teach young people that giving is important. It's let's teach young people that they're capable of giving. Uh, You know, we don't, have to, we generally don't have to teach young people about the importance of certain main things in society. You can just kind of feel it, you know, like, you know, money is important. Otherwise you can't transact. You can't live. Mm-hmm. You know, it's important to eat. Like you figure those things out. But what I think people struggle, young people struggle with is they don't think they're capable of doing things. So they, young people need to know that the $5 that they saved in their piggy bank is meaningful. And they don't, they don't have to compare that to Warren Buffett, right? They, if they give a dollar, that's just as meaningful. That lesson of them giving a dollar, 20% of their $5 is just as important as someone else giving a, a larger sum of money. So they need to be taught that and then put it into action. I mean, some of the guests that we've had on our show are so inspiring because they told stories about how, like you, you kind of alluded to it. And this is the second, the second thing is having them participate in activity, having them volunteer places, having them give, uh, there's a, uh, one family I know they do, they have an allowance. So their kids, you know, take the garbage out, do all their other things. But what they also do is a portion of their, I forget what they call it. It was clever, but they have like a, a charitable allowance. So every week when they get their allowance at you know, the dinner table or Saturday morning, whatever they do it. Okay. They not only give them their money and they put it in their piggy bank and they have a share section in addition to the save and the spend section, but they always execute on the share section. Mm-hmm. So like they have them choose something. Hey, you know, where do you want to give these, this money to today? You know, and then they're also participatory in, in the parents giving as well. So they all sit down the table at the table and they figure out what they're going to support. Um, so, so number one is having them believe that they can make a difference, you know, cause how many young kids out there want to do something? I want to be a firefighter, but I don't know. Like I'm nervous. I don't know. I think I'm capable of doing it yet. It's the same concept of giving. They want to be, it's an errand for humans to support other people so that we should empower them, that they can, they're capable of doing it. And then, then putting it into action at a, at a you know, at a child's level. So, you know how sometimes young people do have a, uh, like a lemonade stand. Mm-hmm. I heard someone once they, I don't think it was lemonade. They they were giving out smoothies or something, not nothing super complicated. Like, you know, 
like I said, like a smoothie or, 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 or juice of some kind, but they were just giving it out. Like there was no, like they weren't charging five cents for the lemonade. And then what they did was, is they realized that people were like dying to pay them. They're like, no, come on, little kid. Like, let me at least give you a nickel or pennies or whatever. I don't know. And they did, they realized that they could have raised money. So instead, the next time what they did was instead of, uh, taking payment, they took money as a donation and gave it to the, you know, local food pantry or whatever it was. And it not only taught the kids that they're to give that they should give, but also taught them that they're capable of creating the business or generating the yeah. money. Like they could, what it wasn't the parents sitting, it was all the kids, like the parents were there supervising. But the parents were just there. It was the kids that were actually raising the money. So they're capable of doing it. Oh, that is a super empowering thought, isn't it? Teaching your kids that they're capable of making the money. Yeah. I mean, oh, it's so true. And then the volunteerism too. When you take them to go somewhere and teach them that, okay, you you may not always have money to give, but maybe you can just give your time. And watching, watching young people especially when they get to, I mean, when you're five or six, there's little things that you can do. But when you start getting to the teenage years, uh, just in my experience, with my, my, due to my um, cancer, I don't know if I, I if you weren't able to deduce from the story, I had testicular cancer. It started as a groin injury and it, it had spread to my abdomen. But because of that, um, I, I'm infertile. So we, we were not able to have kids, but we spent a lot of time with high school and college students and a little bit with middle school. We do some mentoring. And when you start getting to that 13, 14, 15 range, like that is the prime age when they start building that confidence. And whether that confidence is in sports or in school or with their friends, interpersonal relationships or generosity, it's such a powerful age. So like if you can really get people involved in, in, in causes at that point, I think that's critical. Before I get to my last question, Tell people how they can find you. How can they connect with you? You have a lot of content that's out there. I, I Maybe I have too much stuff floating out, around out there. Uh, the best place, my website, bobdepasquale.com. You can find all my social links there. You can find the link to my, my company, Initiate Impact. Um, you can find content, blog, podcast. Everything's right there at bobdepasquale.com. All right. And then is there anything that I didn't ask you that you would like to talk about or just a final thought to share with people. So I, I heard a, a quote the other day um, about you got to know where you came from to know where you're going. And so you asked about the children and I wasn't planning on sharing this, but you, the question you asked is, is poignant. So you asked about children learning about what they have, like how to give and how to be more giving people. Um, as much as giving is this outward expression, right? We're giving away, like, so we need a, a third, a second party or third party to be involved in this process. I think giving really is an internal process. So I would encourage people to think about that, um, is where, where have I come from? Like, what are my roots? What are the things that are most important to me? What are the people in my life that have done good things for me? And I think you'll be surprised how much inspiration is really internal for the generosity message, the generosity mindset. Like you don't have to look, you don't have to go looking on the news or outside or around the corner or on Google to find inspiration to give. Think about what's most important to you. And I'd be, and you'd be surprised that that motivation is way more sustainable than the happy story that you may have heard um, on the internet one. 
Well, thank you so much for being on the show. It was great talking to you. Yeah. No, Kim, awesome. Love, love what you're doing. Appreciate it. All the best. Thank you for joining me for season four of Power Up Your Performance. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend, rate, review, and follow. Dream big and get out there and explore.